Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see everyone here this morning. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Radiant Life, and we are jumping into our two-part Christmas series titled, In the Fullness of Time. But before we jump in, will you turn to your neighbor and just tell them you're glad to see them at church this morning? Turn to your other neighbor, your second choice, and tell them, I guess I'm glad to see you too. And uh, we're glad to see everyone here this morning. Real quick, next week, next Sunday, exactly a week from today, is Christmas Eve. And normally here at Radiant Life, we do a Christmas Eve evening service, a little candlelights and carols and communion and all that. Next week, since it falls on Sunday, we're taking that evening thing that we normally do, and that is going to become part of our regular 9 and 1030 services. So next week, we will have carols, we will have communion, we will have candlelights, and not only that, our radiant kids will be coming in here for a little special for all of us. So that's what we're going to do at 9 and 10.30, Christmas Eve morning. Sound good? I've got one more request from you. Since we still only have two services, and you can look around and see it's pretty packed in the second service, would you do a couple things? Will you, when you come in next week, begin to move as far forward as possible? That allows our guests to come in, and they tend to like to sit in the back, right? I have five Sundays off a year, and when I go on my Sunday off from Radiant Life, I go visit another church. Guess where I sit? Back row, baby. I'm right there in the back row, and I'm out of there as fast as I can, all right? So, just if we create space for our visitors who may be coming in next Sunday morning, if we can just move up, get a little uncomfortable, maybe you're going to switch sides or something like that. You know, we all have our spot that we like. Uh, just begin to move forward, if you will, and also try to squeeze in the middle, all right? So that way our ushers know exactly I know we can squeeze in a family of three right here at the edge, okay? Does that sound fair? Let's make it about Jesus and other people next week, okay? That sound good? That should be every Sunday, right? Jesus and other people, all right? Hey, we're going to jump into this morning's teaching in the fullness of time, and we get this phrase from a guy by the name of Paul who hated Jesus fell in love with Jesus, started the Jesus movement all throughout the ancient world, and he writes a letter to the church in Galatia, and we have that in our Newer Testament called Galatians. And in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, this is what the guy who once hated Jesus is saying. But when the what, friends? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And our question is, what is the fullness of time? Why did God choose when he did in that time in history to send Jesus? What's going on? Why not send Jesus a thousand years later? Or God, why not send Jesus a thousand years earlier? Why that exact moment in time? Why does Paul call this the fullness of of time. And that's what these next two weeks are going to be about. We're going to look at the two birth narratives of Jesus. We're going to look this morning at Luke and, excuse me, next, mor uh, next morning, next Sunday morning, we're going to look at Matthew. 
Those are the two birth narratives. Even though there's four gospels or four letters on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we only get the birth story in two of them, Luke and Matthew. Luke, this morning as we dive in, he's going to give us a macro view, a big, large overview of what's happening in the birth narrative of Jesus. Next week, Matthew is going to get on the microscopic level, and we're going to narrow in into Israel and a guy that's there that Matthew tells us about. Okay? Sound fair? Here's what we got to do this morning, though. You got to turn to your neighbor and say, buckle up and giddy up. Hey, we like giddy up a little more than buckle up. That's what I noticed. Because we're going to get a history lesson that I'm going to make fun, and we're going to have fun and understand it, and then dive in to God's Word. But we have to have this history lesson real quick, super fast. And I was told I had so much stuff in the first service, don't get scared, that this message will be online. If you, I, I don't remember what he said there. Why was that? It'll be online, so catch it next week, okay? Here's how Luke begins the birth narrative of Jesus. He says this in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, who's this guy? Caesar Augustus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And instantly, to a first century reader, they know who this guy is and what is happening. That would be like if Luke was writing a letter to us, and we would understand in those days of Pearl Harbor, in those days of the Holocaust, in those days of Martin Luther King Jr., in those days of 9-11. We get that. We lived through it. We understand the impact of those moments. But 2,000 years removed from this, this would have been shocking to the ancient readers. What does it mean for us? We have to understand who this guy is. Why does Luke say, in those days, Caesar Augustus? Who is this guy? What is he doing? Why is he on the Roman throne? What is going on in the world that Jesus is birthed into? So we have to understand Caesar Augustus. And this is what I have. If, if you would just entertain me for a minute. Can you just, everyone, just let's close our eyes. Don't fall asleep on me. Just close your eyes. Think you're on the beach in Australia. And there's a little kangaroos jumping on the beach. I don't even know if kangaroos go to the beach, but you're there. And you're looking out beyond the water. And it's crystal clear. And you're away from Michigan and snow, and it's just beautiful. All right, you can open your eyes. You got that picture? I often view that as God's word. It's awe-inspiring, it's beautiful, it's awesome. But oftentimes, we could be on the shore and see the sunset and the ocean, and it's beautiful, but we don't know just right below the surface is a whole nother story. The Great Barrier Reef is right there, full of life. That's what this series is. We're going to go below the surface and go diving in order to bring more life and beauty into the birth narrative of Jesus. So are you ready? We got to go underneath. So let's go under the water. Caesar Augustus. Here's the entire Roman Empire. 
They ruled on the scene for about 1,600 years, and they make their very first impression in 163 BC. They go to this little place in Africa called Carthage, and they wreak havoc to these people. Havoc, completely destroy them, and now the ancient world is going, uh-oh, there's an empire on the rise by the name of the Romans. Uh-oh. In the same year in 163 BC, they go over to Corinth in Greece and defeat the Greeks, Alexander the Great. They defeat them in 163, and now the Mediterranean world is getting nervous because this empire is beginning to move this way, and uh-oh, they defeated the great Greeks. And then around 70s to the 60s BC, they take over present-day Turkey, which is Asia Minor. They take over Israel, Syria, Lebanon, and they conquer Egypt. And now on the world scene, you have the Roman Empire ruling. My question is, though, how did they get all of that land? And what is the Roman Empire up to in order for us to understand who is Caesar Augustus. Why did Luke say, in those days, Caesar Augustus? So we're going to look at a couple Greek and Roman historians and poets to get an idea of what this empire is up to and what in the world are they doing. Here's Virgil, a Greek poet, writes this, you, O Roman, remember to rule the nations with might. This will be your genius to impose the way of what? Peace to spare the conquered and crush the proud. They went around, and their whole goal as the Roman Empire was Pax Ramona. Turn to your neighbor and say, Pax Ramona. That is just their word for peace that they're bringing. Peace with Rome, Pax Ramona, peace. And in fact, the way they did it, they would crush you. Even though you're destroyed, their mentality is, we destroy you, but we're bringing world peace. We're bringing Pax Ramona. And in fact, in order to get their message across to the ancient world, they put coinage to this message of destruction and peace. Here's a piece of their coin. Over here's the Greek god or the Roman goddess Pax, which is peace, the, god, the goddess of peace. And then on the backside is Caesar with a spear. Peace by destruction. And not only was there actual actions being put into play, but coinage. So you just got ruled by Roman Rome's because they just took over Sturgis, and now they're distributing peace through destruction. Our coinage is now that. And it gets uglier and uglier. Look at what Tacitus writes. He's a historian. He says this. For 50 miles around, he, Germanicus, who was a Roman military commander, wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither age or sex inspired pity. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. Only the destruction of the race would end the war. They did not care if you were a baby, a child, a teenager, an adult, or the elderly. If you were in their way, they would crush you. They would absolutely terrorize you to submission. That was their goal. But with that, they wanted peace. And here's what one other uh, Polybius writes this. It seems to me that they do this for the sake of terror. 
And that's how they progress their empire. We will destroy you, destroy you, conquer you, crush you, but we're bringing peace. That was their mentality. In fact, one of the things, the ways that they terrorize you, and you and I know this because of who Jesus is, but one way was crucifixion. In fact, we accredit the Romans to developing the idea of crucifixion, but it's not the Romans who actually brought it. It was the Persians. The Persians actually developed crucifixions. The Romans perfected crucifixion. They would come in and crucify you. They would rape you. They would destroy you. They would torture you until they got your land and brought the Roman peace, Pax Ramona. And in fact, they started to do this, the Romans, so well of crucifying people. They would go around and brag to their enemies that they could keep someone alive for three days while they crucified you. And they bragged about that. Welcome to the Roman Empire, the world that Jesus was born into. But it gets even more dis disturbing. Quintilian, a, a poet, writes this. Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can, be, can, be, can see and be moved by this fear. For penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect. They picked US-12 and M-66, lined it with crosses, and crucified you. That way, as we pass by, it would bring the message, don't mess with Rome. And in fact, Josephus, who's one of the greatest historians of the ancient world, writes that one to point, the Romans went in, conquered a city, and crucified over 2,000 men, women, and children. They were out for destruction. And in fact, that doesn't stop there. The Romans went around bragging that they were running out of trees to make crosses to crucify people. Do you see how evil the Roman Empire was? And this is how, oh, look at Tacitus. This is, oh man. They are, referring to the Romans, they are the plunderers of the world. If the enemy is rich, they are rapacious. If poor, they lust for dominion. Not east, not west has seated them. They rob, they butcher, plunder, and call it empire. And where they make desolation, they call it what? Peace. And this is how they got all of that. They ruled with an iron fish iron fist of destruction, but bringing peace. And if you know anything about Rome, you know that there's a guy by the name of Caesar that sits on the throne, but most of us are familiar with the idea of the Romans having a Roman Senate. And most of us know this dude, Julius Caesar, thanks to a guy by the name of Shakespeare. He helped make him 
famous. And in fact, Julius Caesar was a Roman commander in the military. He rose to great power, and he had a little sidekick by the name of Pompey. It's almost like Robin and Batman, right? He's more Batman. Pompey was Robin. They both were kind of fighting for political power, but Rome had a Senate, which all the power was, or was held. And what happened is Pompey wanted more power. He was fearful of Julius the Caesar. So Pompey left and fled to Egypt. Well, Julius Caesar says, uh-uh, little Robin, I'm chasing you. On the heels of Pompey, gets to Egypt and assassinates Pompey. He goes to back to Rome and says, I defeated him. You should give me some more power. And the Roman Senate says, Okay, we do like you. Here's a little more power to you, Julius Caesar. Well, in 44 BC, two guys by the name of Brutus and Cassius assassinate Julius Caesar. They think he's getting too much power, and the power should be with the Roman Senate, not any individual. Julius Caesar has a great nephew by the name of Octavian. And Octavian is the heir to all of Julius Caesar's stuff and his power in Rome. Now, two years later, in 42 BC, there's a comet overhead, and the Roman Senate sees this comet and says, uh-oh, that must be Julius Caesar. He's here to avenge himself. He must be a god. We assassinated a god. And they coined that message with a picture of Julius Caesar that says divine with a comet. And all of a sudden, in 42 BC, the Roman Senate declared that Julius Caesar must be a god. Therefore, the heir to all of Julius Caesar's stuff, who is Octavian, his great nephew, must be the son of God. So Octavian gets the nickname, son of God. Do you see what's happening you have an empire on the scene of Jesus' birth who says we're bringing peace to everyone. And now you have someone um, in 27 BC, Octavian is granted the name Jul or, um, Caesar Augustus. And now you have the very first Caesar Augustus sitting on the Roman throne whose nickname is Son of God. Following? Come on now. Here we go. It gets better. So look at what Horace writes about this son of God now on the throne. Thine age, O Caesar, because this is the first time we have a Caesar on the throne, has brought back fertile crops to the field, has wiped away our what? So now we have an empire bringing peace. We have a Caesar Augustus who's the son of God who's wiping away sins of the world and revive the ancient virtues. As long as Caesar is the guardian of the state, neither civil dissension nor violence shall banish what? Peace. And it gets even crazier. Virgil writes, Lo, under his, whatever that word is, hey, hey, my son, that glorious Rome, shall bound her empire by earth, her pride in heaven. This, this is he whom thou so oft hearest promise to thee. Augustus Caesar, what are those four words? Son of a God who again set up the golden age. And only in the Older Testament, King Solomon set up the golden age. 
And now here they are saying, "Uh uh-uh, Solomon's nothing compared to Caesar Augustus. He's the son of God, and he's setting up something brand new. This gets crazy. And you sit there, and you read more and more of these quotes from people. And lastly, one last thing of our history lesson, and then we're going to jump back into Luke. This This is awesome. Here's Caesar Augustus. And in Perine, Turkey, they found an inscription on a calendar in 9 BC, and this is what it says, the beginning sentence of what it says about this guy. Here's what it says. This is the print calendar, the beginning of the gospel, and it's all about Caesar Augustus. And Mark, who writes about the life of Jesus, begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you see what Mark is doing? He's pitting Caesar Augustus against Jesus. You think the gospel message, the good news is Caesar? I have the true gospel message and his name is Jesus. And now you have two kingdoms that are at war with each other, Caesar and Jesus. And look at what this is, an entire thing of what Caesar Augustus is quoted to. And I know I spelled gospel wrong. I'm sorry. But Caesar Augustus, he's the divine son of God. He brings the gospel, which is the good news. He brings peace, which is Pax Ramona. He brings salvation for humanity and the forgiveness of sins. Is that not disturbing? Because we want to accredit all those to Jesus. Yet Paul wrote... In Galatians 4, 4, but when the what, friends? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. And you sit there and start to believe, now I know a little bit more of why Jesus cho- or why God chose that time in history to send Jesus. So now that our history res- lesson's done, everyone take a deep breath and go, oh. All right, so let's jump in now to the narrative, now we know. So jump into the older or Newer Testament to Luke chapter 2 if you haven't already. Luke writes, Luke is a doctor, he goes around and he does a great um, interviewing people on the life of Jesus and we have his letter, Luke, but Luke writes in Luke chapter 2 the birth narrative and we are going to look, now we have a, hopefully a better understanding. All right, Luke chapter 2, let's jump into the life of Jesus. In those days, who again? Caesar. Oh, yeah, the guy who they called the Son of God, the guy who was supposed to bring peace to the world. Oh, the guy that brings forgiveness of sins and salvation to humanity. Ah, now we understand. That good? Come on, we're going deep. We're going under the surface. This is a whole nother level. All right. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a what? We'll get to that in a minute. A census, a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Now, what is this census? Because in the 21st century, we just sign documents and send them away, and a census is taken. It's pretty easy. But in the ancient world, it was military oppression. That is what Mary and Joseph are riding into is military oppression because all the Romans wanted was your money. They wanted to tax you up to 70% taxation. 
Yeah, we can thank our government for their taxes right now. At least we don't have 70%, right? I mean, it may feel like it sometimes, but we don't have 70% taxation. And the Roman government just wanted your money. They wanted to know what property do you own so we can get money, so money can fund our military. Why do we need a military? Because we're bringing peace to the world. Pax Ramona. And here's what Dr. Gary Burge says. He's a New Testament professor. He was at Wheaton College. Now he's up in Grand Rapids at Calvin College. But this is what he says about this census that takes place, what Mary and Joseph are going into. He says this, the census of Bethlehem was a violent act that was perpetrated throughout the empire to control those who were conquered and to register taxable property. There is violence in the nativity story and torture in the streets. It was awful. The Jewish people hated the census. They weren't nice. And here they are, hardworking, good Jewish people, and this empire that's rolling over them is taking all their money away. Let's continue what Luke writes in the birth narrative. Verse 2, then Luke This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee into Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. In verse 10, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, them referring to the shepherds out in the field, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were what, friends? I always thought I wanted to see an angel until every time you read in the Bible, no, thank you. Like, everyone's response is, I'm scared, I'm terrified, right? I see a spider. I don't like spiders at all. I'm terrified. I don't think I want to see an angel now anymore, all right? But they're terrified. But it's interesting. The angels always have the same response every time. But the angel said to them, again, the shepherds out in the field, don't be afraid. I bring you what, friends? That will cause what? For who? All people today in the town of David, a what? A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the what? The Lord. In other words, the true Messiah, the true one that's coming to reign and forgive you of your sins, the one that is coming to bring salvation to humanity, the one that is coming to bring true peace is coming right now to you in a little town called Bethlehem because all Caesars will die. Octavian will die, Tiberius will die, Caligula will die, Nero will die, but not the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, and his message will continue on. And that is what the angel is bringing, the true good news. Not this Caesar who sits on the throne, who claims they're the Son of God, who brings forgiveness of sins. Not them, this little baby, is it? Then the angel says in verse 14, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace. And on earth, true shalom. Because this empire is not going to do it. 
My son will. And Paul writes to us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. You know, for us, we've entered into a a time of the Christmas season. It's known as Advent. Maybe many of you are doing your own little Advent devotionals every day, but Advent means the expecting or the waiting or the coming of an arrival. And I think for many of us, we find ourselves in our own Advents, just waiting. Waiting for God to respond or waiting God to act or answer a prayer. Waiting for God to restore that broken relationship. Waiting for God to correct our kids because we feel we're failing as a parent. Waiting for God to do something in the workplace or with my finances. We just find ourselves in our own advents. Waiting. And while we wait... Sometimes our psyche can get the best of us. We sit there and say, God, where are you? Do you know I'm here? Because I'm on my knees every day and there's nothing. I want us to walk away knowing, as Paul writes, in the fullness of time, God sent forth. God is the master of time management. He knows what you need and when you need it. And if there's anything I want us to walk away from this story of Luke in the birth narrative, is this principle. He's never early. He's never late. He's always what, friends? Right on time. God waited until Caesar Augustus was on the throne, the one who called himself the son of God, saving humanity, to say, okay, son, it's time to go invade earth. He's never early. He's never late. He's always right on time. But the thing you and I have to wrestle with is that waiting because we want answer my prayer God I want it now and God says in the fullness of time I'll be there the team's going to lead us in a song called it is well and we have to As we sing and worship to this song and to as we worship God, I want us to really wrestle. It's well. Whether you're still in your advent just waiting and waiting for whatever you're waiting for or you're waiting for however you desire God to act in your life, that we can in the midst go, I know God, you're never early, you're never late, you're always right on time and in the midst of whatever mountain and valley I'm in, I'm going to worship you. Because even though I'm waiting, I'm waiting with him. So will you please stand and we're going to worship together through the song, It Is Well. 
And what I've learned about in the fullness of time is that where, that's where I can grab onto God and say, you know what you're doing and I'm going to hold tight. I don't know what storm I'm in and I'm waiting, but I'm holding you tight. The team's going to lead us into another song called Do It Again. And I love the way this song actually kicks off. It says, walking around these walls, I thought by now they'd fall. But you have never failed me yet. Waiting for change to come, knowing the battle's won, for you have never failed me yet. May we clutch to the God who is a master of time, who knows when he needs to respond and what you need in the right moment at the right time. Amen, church?